0: Well, we're in our series from uh, the book of Acts, Becoming the Church, Stories of the First Jesus People. And uh, we're in chapter 17 again. I wanted, uh, before we read chapter 17, we're gonna look at verses 16 through 34 this morning. So we're gonna go through the the balance or what remains of uh, Acts 17. But over the last couple of chapters, we've been plotting Paul's progress on this journey. And it started uh, in Antioch on the right side of the screen. You see the little green dots? I put those in for you so you could kind of see all the little cities, or they're not necessarily little, but by today's standards, they're little. They have yellow in the circle, but I put green. Those are the places Paul has been, and right over there on the left, there's an arrow pointing to Athens. That's where he is. Not now, but he was back then. This is just, this is a visual aid, a visual aid only. All right, so that kind of helps us uh, understand where he is. He's in the uh, Region or the like, what we would call the state. Like this is the state of California. He's in the state of Achaia, which is where Greece and Corinth and so Athens today. Let's uh, let's look at Acts chapter 17 and read with me as I read, uh, starting at verse 16. You'll recall he fled Berea because they got into such trouble in Thessalonica, um, they didn't bring it on themselves necessarily, but uh, they've been kind of chased. So he has gone on to Athens. While Paul was waiting for them, he's all alone there in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, altars to idols, altars to gods. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching or strange teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Well, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. I'm going, he says, now, uh, now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, and they should, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demeris, and a number of others. Both of my children, Shelley and I have two, both of my children are grown, and now um, they have children of their own, which makes me a grandfather. Uh, Something I'm still not easy with, Because grandfolks, grandmas, grandpas are old people. So uh, I'm not there yet, I don't think. But before I had children, I trained uh, dogs. And I learned some valuable skills. And I gained some incredible insights into parenting from training dogs. I mean, if you're perceptive, if you pay attention... If you understand, you know, what, what goes on when you're trying to train something, uh, like a dog, a living thing, uh, you gain some insights. And out of, I'm just going to give you, uh, this is an acronym that means uh, the word itself. Each letter of the word stands for another word. It's a, it's a mnemonic device. It's a way of remembering. And it's the word aid, A-I-D. Okay, and I see some of you have young children. This is going to be wonderful for you. Trust me. I'm, I'm not kidding. This this was a huge insight for me. Uh, aid. A stands for accident. I stands for ignorance. That is, they don't know. And D stands for defiance. Now, if you as a parent can distinguish when your child has done something out of an accident they you know they've just it was an accident and when they didn't know better they did it because they didn't know they were ignorant or they did it because they were being stubborn and you're not the boss i am that's human nature So accident, ignorance, defiance. If you can distinguish those three, you'll be a much better parent because what happens is sometimes we, as parents, misinterpret the actions of our kids. We think that what was an accident was an act of defiance. Like when they're goofing around at the table and you've asked them, it's been a long day already, and now daddy's home, and when they reach across and they knock over that glass of water or milk, It's just the last straw. But there's a difference. It was an accident. It wasn't the defiance you had seen all the day. Or sometimes we ask of our kids things. For example, my dad trained me how to sweep. You would think it's an innate thing to be able to sweep. You would think anybody could see a broom and take it in hand and know how to sweep, but that is not true. You have to be taught how to sweep. And my dad taught me how to sweep. He informed me, he passed on tremendous knowledge and wisdom so that I might sweep the garage as his liege and slave. and do it in a way befitting my king, my dad. <laughs> but some of us, me included, I thought my kids should know that. It was so obvious. So I just say, sweep. Sweep? What's that mean? Well, you know, of course, everybody knows what sweep means. Sweep. What do I sweep with? How do I sweep? How do I hold it? What is a dustpan? How do I use a dustpan? And there are, by the way, there are skills in using a dustpan. (laughs) And if you don't think so, then just give one to your kid and see what he does with it. (laughs) Ignorance. You see, sometimes developmentally we expect things of our kids that they themselves have not been taught. Or maybe even you know, chronologically old enough. That is, their body and their motor skills are not at the place where they can actually carry out what you're asking them to do. So, aid. This is a great aid to you. Accident, ignorance, defiance. But I want to focus on ignorance. Because we expect the behavior, not only of our kids, that sometimes we haven't trained them or they are not developmentally able to even accomplish yet, but sometimes we expect that of people around us. We assume they know what we know. And boy, when that comes to spiritual things, that's huge. We expect them to be morally where we are. Because we know God. Or we've come to that place where we love God and God actually has the ability to get our attention to move us around just by his word, because we love his word. We, we know that his wisdom is for our benefit, and he's proven it to us in Jesus. So, you know, we don't have to be, uh, we don't have to have our arm twisted, but out there we expect sometimes the world to be motivated, incentivized, transformed, and changed like we are. You know what I'm talking about? And the world is ignorant of the God that we know. Think about that. We don't realize, I mean, we, we, we have a foundation of joy and well-being and just so many benefits and, and, and gifts, if you will, of God's grace. Even the eyes to see them that change our disposition, our outlook, even on our day. And we tend to kind of assume that everybody else out there in the world has this same fund of well-being, but they don't. They're hurting in ways we may never hurt again. They're empty in ways we'll never be empty. They're ignorant of the God that we know. Paul, by the way, Romans 3.23, a verse that I think we've all heard, and is not difficult to commit to memory. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are ignorant. And Paul, in the face of snide remarks, you must have picked that up from the reading. I mean, snide and smug superiority and belittling treatment. In other words, He cares about these people, but they're treating him as a second class or a third class or whatever you think of as lowly. They're treating him as a person that is beneath them, and they're treating him in a belittling way. And yet Paul, it says in verse 16, was greatly distressed. Is he distressed about the way they're treating him? No. No. He's distressed by the fact that they are ignorant of the God that he knows. That's what gets to him. That's what should get to us. Now, I, don't, I'm not, I know I'm physically above you at this point. I'm looking down on you. But I am right there with you this is as much for me as it is for us. We need to be moved by the ignorance, the fact that people around us don't know the God we know. That should be a motivation. I want you to know this fun, this overflowing bank account of goodness that is so native now to my life because I know God. It makes that big a difference. But you know what happens to us so so often? We who know the Lord, what happens to us is we're looking at them in an envious way. Which I find really ironic. I want what they have you know sometimes we think even that those who don't have this this supercharged conscience because we know the lord that they don't have some of the issues that we have to deal with so they just they enjoy just kind of going after all of it with all the gusto in the world isn't that odd that we get the lord into our life and he he starts just rewarding us so profoundly <laughs> and we're not rejoicing or appreciating or fully giving account it used to bug me of course I wasn't um, I don't I wouldn't have counted myself as a follower of Jesus Christ I just like born in a Christian home right and my mom though, She knew where I was at. This was when I was in high school and and first year of college. And she would knock on my door, which I didn't like. It was an invasion of my privacy and space. (laughs) That's the way I looked at it. And now I think, what a fool I was. I mean, it's not even my home, you know, but anyway. But she would say, John, count your blessings. Count them one by one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later, mom. And it's in our nature not to be grateful. And so we start even, you know, looking after what others have, even though many of them don't even know the Lord. I don't know. That's That's an aside. I didn't even plan to say that. Do you ever do things the hard way? Sure you do. It's the school of hard knocks. I have degrees there too. There's a saying, you give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. In other words, there's a smarter way to get the job done. There's a smarter way to change the world. There's a smarter way to change the person that you want desperately to change. If you try to change a person on your own, you're living with that person you're trying to change, are you? Are you trying to change them? And now that you keep hearing the word nag? And that frustrates you? And this thing's just going sideways or backwards or down the tube? Well, that happens because you're going, when you try to change someone's behavior, well you just can't do it, yet you're going to keep trying and, and that person you're going to turn into an enemy. That's like trying to feed a person one day at a time. But you can teach him to fish and he'll feed himself for a lifetime. And you can tell your friend or your, that person, or you can live in such a way that you influence and inspire that person for Jesus Christ and you'll change them. You'll turn that, instead of an enemy, into a lifetime friend. Because Jesus is the only one that can really do the changing. And I'm speaking from personal experience. Ask yourself, really, can anybody else change you? What has changed you more than anything else if it isn't Jesus Christ? Is it not Jesus that causes you to rethink things that you have always assumed and you say, wait a second, that's not true or selfishness, you know, that just natural knee-jerk reaction. You see, Paul in Athens, when he was so vexed, so greatly distressed in his spirit, it was because they were ignorant of God. They did not know him like he knew him. And so the solution is not to legislate against idolatry. Go to the Areopagus, which was a ruling council. Go to them and start talking about, we've got to do something about all the idols in here. And I propose we make a law, because laws will get the job done. No, he told them about God. Because you can know this for a fact. If you know God, then He will leave no room in your life for false idols it's just the way it is he gets rid of the idols well we used to sing a song just as i am and that's where we'll start because that's that's where paul starts with these people right where they are right where we are and he starts to tell them about the lord and that's really the emphasis of this message, I think, in what Luke relates. There are other things that are important to Luke's master plan in the book of Acts, to be sure. And this is the first time that Paul is in Athens. And what's profound to me is that we see here that he cares and he communicates and then he continues. And that's what I want us to see. And I'm going to abbreviate uh, this, but the truth about God makes us care. That's why Paul's greatly distressed. Not because he's been offended. He's above that. And the truth about God makes him want to communicate. He doesn't just talk at them. Communication is not talking at people alone, but it's an attempt to try and, and kind of open them up to receiving what you have to say. So you want to encode so that they can decode and I'm working at that all the time. Sure, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to be rough around the edges. Sometimes I use words that people tell me they don't know. And I'm getting better at that. I am not interested in using big words. But sometimes, you know why they have big words? Because sometimes they say things better than any other word. But, so I use two or three or four or five words. And that's why sometimes, by the way, that's why if I ever go long, that is the problem right there. So I just want you know, it's an effort to do the right thing. But anyway, but notice how plain Paul is. And, and just to simplify it or to boil it down, I mean, he doesn't even use the name Jesus at this stage of what he's saying. He just says, that man, that man who was raised from the dead. Well, there's only one, so... <laughs> and obviously, when he, when he was grieved, he started... What did he do when he was upset? Did he go around grumbling or start a self-help group? Or No, he went out there and it says that he went to the synagogue. So when do you go to the synagogue? When are they at the synagogue? Saturdays. That's Sabbath. So every Sabbath, he's at the synagogue and he's talking to, you know, Jews like him, but he's also looking, talking to, you know, God-seeking Greeks and then what's he doing the rest of the time? He goes into the marketplace, and he talks with whoever's there and that's where these epicurean and stoic philosophers show up. One of the profound things I found that um, as I had to go to school to you know get better at what I do is uh, is to realize that things that we take for granted. I mean, this is a very plain passage. Uh, Paul is ever clear. But when you do go to school, you're introduced to things that you already take for granted, and you realize that you shouldn't take them for granted. They're really quite unique. God, and what Paul says about God, is really quite unique. One of a kind. And, and Luke himself doesn't explain all the thinking and philosophy of the Epicurean and Stoics, so I'm not going to, but they don't believe in a personal God. I mean, when you think about it, just the idea of a personal God. And, and that's the picture Paul gives us. In fact, he, he, there's, the, these philosophies are so kind of abstract, that is non-personal you know, in terms of, of what they teach. And the purpose of it all, every philosophy, is to master the soul so that you might be able to manage life more effectively. That's it, you know? To lead a more accomplished life. And they have different ideas about how to do that and what the goal is and what the best way to live is. But that was the purpose of philosophy. But what Paul says here is again and again about a personal God when he talks about the fact that God is the creator of heaven and earth. In other words, he's Lord over all, he says. There's no other God. He's the only one. And then he goes on to say that He created everything that is all human beings from one man. That's very significant because it does speak to the fact that we are in his image, which is a case that Paul is making here. You might have noticed. I mean, he doesn't build with, he doesn't live in houses that we make for him. He's not dependent upon us in any way. And then he brings up this issue of us making God in our image. He says we want to make him out of metal or stone or gold. We want to make him, as it were, the the outcome of our own ingenuity and what we can make and do and accomplish. But what is he emphasizing here? He says to them, he says, we are his offspring. And he is, he is near to us, even though he has ordered and governed and kind of supervised this, all that we see. And so he draws two conclusions as he communicates to them. He says, the first conclusion, verse 29, as his offspring, how can we see God's divine nature like a material? And he says, this is ignorance. And that's Paul's point. Listen, we as creatures of ignorance, intrinsic dignity by virtue of how God has made us. That's what he's talking about. Having been created by God, we ought to refrain from false worship. Since we're made in the image of God, it's insulting to God and degrading to us to make an idol of him. Voltaire said, God made man in his own image, and man returned the favor. Interesting. Dallas Willard says that idolatry is fundamentally the exaltation of our own ego. And to simplify what he said, instead of quoting him, basically he says, whenever you make an idol, you're doing that in whatever service you apply because you want that idol, in effect, to serve you. So ultimately, he ends it is humans themselves who are the universal idol. The second conclusion he draws in verse 30, therefore God has overlooked such ignorance and now commands people everywhere to repent. He really puts it on the line. He says you have a dignity that you don't appreciate. It is from God himself. Yet, we're, they, Some have said that there were about 10,000 people in Athens at that time and 30,000 idols. Now, I don't know how they come up with that number, but the point is, is that for every person, there were at least three altars or acknowledgements of idols. There were a lot of idols in that. And you know what? Things haven't changed. The insidious thing is we don't call them idols. There are so many things that captivate us and turn our attention from the Lord. But he draws his conclusion. He says, we've got to repent, which is to change. And the stinger is God Because he's personal. Because you have this intrinsic dignity that he's created you in his image. We're accountable to him. Epicureans thought, we just die, that's it. Game over. And annihilation. A lot of people love that kind of idea, you know, because then it lets them off the hook, they think. And then uh, Stoics, of course... Uh, they believe that they're a particle of the universe. And so when they die, you just kind of become part of that. And Paul says, "It's, it's not like that at all. God holds us accountable. And there is going to be a judgment. And then he says something amazing there. He says the proof is the resurrection. What does the resurrection mean? I shared this with the, the, the students at Satellite in July when I was with them. I'm just... The resurrection is, I call it, my irreducible minimum. In other words, um, I could give up a lot, but I will not give up the resurrection. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. I really, I really, there, that's, that's it. I, you can't take anything else away because that is where I draw the line. And I'll tell you why. Because the resurrection validates, it validates the life and death of Jesus Christ. It tells me that what Jesus taught was true. It also tells me that his death was not just a mistake. It wasn't a tragedy, as if there was no meaning in it, you see. There is meaning in his death. He died for sin, your sin and mine. And the resurrection proves that. Now, out of the resurrection, I am assured then something about God. God is just. God is just because Jesus' death paid a price. His death was for the sin of the whole world. That tells me God is just. He doesn't just say, I don't care. Do whatever you want. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm God. I can do whimsical things. Secondly, if God is just and it is his son that died on the cross for me, then that also tells me something else really tremendous about God. That he is gracious. Grace, everything good comes out of grace. Love is uh, under grace, under the category of grace. Love, mercy, every good and wonderful thing God is gracious. He is merciful. Another thing that it tells me is that God is good and personal. Now, I don't know if that means much to you. You might just think that's a theology lesson. But in my personal life, this is what it means for me. It means that I can sacrifice. Do you know something? That if you really get a hold of God's grace... It means people are going to take advantage of you. You need to really think about that. If you are gracious and you understand God's grace, then you are going to be taken advantage of. There will be people who will think Christians are dupes and take advantage of your trust and your love and your forgiveness and your mercy and your kindness. They'll exploit it. And evil exploits God, exploits His people, exploits goodness. Right? But only God in Jesus Christ overcame death in the resurrection. And that tells me He wins in the end. It doesn't matter that it looks like everything's fallen apart, and I'm being taken. Adv- I don't like it when people take advantage of me. But that's what we did to Jesus. That's the nature of sin. And if you and I don't get our heads around this fact that because He wins in the end, I can sacrifice. I can let my wife, or my husband, or my kids, or people at the church, or... Co-workers or people on the road, they can take advantage of me. They can get the best of me. That's okay. Because if that isn't okay, then I'm lost too. Jesus did that for me. That's the gospel. That's his grace. That's the fact that he's just. And his son, Jesus Christ, paid the price. The debt we owe to his, his holiness. But we're all living by the law. Do it my way, or do it the way that we think is right. And we get all upset and exercised. And there's no grace in us. We're constantly irritated by the way the world is falling apart and people aren't playing by the rules and taking advantage of this and that. Listen to the gospel. Here in the resurrection, there is a proof God wins in the end. And it's been proven to us in Jesus Christ. God is good. You don't have to win now. He will win. And if you don't think so, and if it doesn't make a difference in your daily life, then you do not believe in the resurrection. But if you believe in the resurrection, then there's room in your faith and theology for miracles and for Christ, the Son of God, who sinned because God loves you and cares for you because He is personal. He's not just some abstraction. It makes every difference. Whew. Kind of got worked up there. Is it hard sometimes? Absolutely. It's no easier for me. It really isn't. I just catch myself all the time, you know. I was driving in. God's, God's man, the pastor, was driving in to God's church to be with God's people." And this guy was poking along in front of me. There were two cars side by side and he wasn't going to let me by. So I I got over on the right. Then he decides to put the blinker on. So I back off and let him in. So far I'm really doing good. (laughs) I was was thinking about it. I was conscious, you know. And then uh, and so I pull, then I put my left blinker on, and i saw so like, oh, very nice of him. I'm going to go, and then he puts his left blinker on, and I can see him. He's just laughing like a hyena. <laughs> and in the power of God, when I went by, I smiled back. <laughs> now, that may seem like a trivial thing, and it really is but our life is made of those trivial things is God in those little things paul says he's not far from us he was a, he was referring to his own listeners when they said they you know we we grope god god's put it in us to seek him my own dad didn't know his biological father his whole life was was changed by this desperate search to find his dad i think that is reflective of an innate nature. It's said that each of us has. were created with a God-shaped vacuum. Do you know God? Is that vacuum filled with God? Will you stand with me? Paul continued. It wasn't a a super, super, uh, you know, successful time in Athens, but yet look at all of us reading what what God did and uh, how He used Paul. And uh, there were two responses mentioned by Luke, and I think women didn't, reputable women don't hang out in the marketplace, and this Demarus is found in the marketplace. So you have the extremes. You have you know, someone of the Areopagus, which would be the social elite in Athens. And then you have Demeris of the Marketplace, who was probably a woman of uh, you know, questionable behavior and reputation. God makes a difference no matter who we are. We need him. We have a God-shaped vacuum. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. Um, We can respect you even if we don't know you. It's so clear from your word that you are personal, that you care for us, and Jesus Christ reveals that you love us desperately. We pray this morning, Father, that um, we might walk closer to you today, tomorrow, that uh, the anchor of the gospel the resurrection might teach us uh, not only all that you've done for us but who we are and how we are to uh, to live our lives father we pray all of this in jesus name and all of god's people said Amen. amen